Gen X Playback, episode number nine. Tastes great, less feeling. It's the hottest podcast in Nesville, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the Gen X Playback show. My name is uh, Scott. And I am Sean. And uh, once again, we want to thank all of our listeners as this podcast continues to grow week after week. Uh, you know, previously you could catch us on Spotify and uh, Apple iTunes and welcome if anybody is now listening to us on iHeartRadio, uh, we're happy to have those listeners join us as well. So it's just nice to see a little bit of growth from week week to week, and uh, our viewership uh, continues to, to rise. So hopefully you are telling your friends, and, and we're really appreciative of just uh, tuning that you're tuning into the show. I, well, I think one of my favorite things about that is the fact we're kind of forming this little community, and we're getting some good feedback from it. We, we have our own little tribe we have going on here, and it's kind of a, exciting to see that that we're not alone there's a lot of other people that want to uh, reminisce about the uh, the great time that was gen x uh, that is gen x's experience and you know i was just talking to one of our listeners uh today and, and he was saying that you know prior to finding our podcast this was you know he said you know you, you hear a lot about the uh the boomers and the, you know the millennials get a lot of attention, but what about us? You know, what about the Gen Xers? Well, and here we were. We were just waiting, <laughs> waiting for him. So, uh, Gordon Yoder, this you know, throw it out. Appreciate you listening. And as you know, with any anything that goes out there, sometimes it's all about the timing. And it happened in our past. And let's face it, you know, you're sitting in in classes when we all went to school. You're hearing about World War II. You're hearing about the Roaring Twenties, but there really was brought towards us. And so now we're finally starting to have that opportunity to look at it. The 70s, 80s, and 90s were a very, you know, enjoyable time for you to grow up, uh, you know, viewing everything around you, whether it was music or sports or movies or any kind of pop culture. Yeah. And, you know, for you and me, those were good times. And you know, it's not like today that we're not experiencing good times, but it's always nice to, to kind of reminisce about um, you know, as you, you, Bruce Springsteen talks about the glory days. Well, you're sure there's some of that, but I don't think we're stuck in those days. It's looking back fondly and saying, boy, that was great. Yeah, and our we're going to talk about somebody here in, in this episode that for many Gen Xers, for just about every Gen Xer, when we bring up the name Julia Serving, Dr. J, that everybody, I believe, has, whether you're a basketball fan or not, uh, people that grew up during that time knew who Julius Irving was, as uh, not only as an athlete but as somebody who endorsed products. Uh, you know, Dr. J was a big deal, and we're gonna we're gonna get into that tonight. Yeah, it's you know a name that I, I think everybody knows who Dr. J is. You know, Doc's uh, you know he was somebody that that uh, was very relevant to the culture, and so we talk pop culture here on this podcast, and Dr. J was more than just a basketball player you know he was somebody that was at the forefront of as you say with advertisement you know at, at the time when he was big and, and we'll discuss this you know the nba was struggling you know when, when doc comes into the nba not only does he help make the nba relevant for when you know magic comes in and larry bird comes in and anyone that's out there who have seen who saw the hbo series winning time knows that those two players, Bird and, and Magic, kind of ushered in, you know, what became the big time with the um, with the NBA today. But you know, Dr. J was the guy who kind of was was the bridge from kind of the dark days of the NBA moving forward. And but on top of that, he was such a likable guy. 
and he was such a classy guy, and he was somebody that really was able to sell products from, um, you know, uh, you know, there weren't many black athletes at the time back then who were selling products to predominantly white uh, markets, and Dr. J was. And I, and I also wanted to take the time to do an episode on, on Dr. J because, you know, as the NBA continues to move on, and, you know, when you, when you go back and view history, I think Doc's legacy starts to dwindle just a little bit. And you can look at a lot of basketball players and have that same conversation. Certainly, Will Chamberlain is somebody that comes to mind. Oscar Robertson comes to mind. Jerry West. I mean, there's a lot of great NBA players that don't continue to be a part of the discussion amongst the next generation. And I think my kids knew who Dr. J was probably through me. But I think if you looked at uh, you know vehicles, whether it's TV, ESPN, or whoever covers the NBA, they don't spend as much time with Julius Serving anymore. And I think for us as basketball fans, growing up as basketball fans, he was in the NBA to us because we were Sixers fans. And we kind of came onto it later because by the time you and I started following basketball, Doc's, you know, in his late 20s pushing 30 right and ended up playing till he was 30 you know 37 yeah 37 yeah that's right and so i i think one of the things i think is important to talk about in this particular episode is just what dr j meant to the nba in the 70s because he was the face of the sport during that time and and uh you know give the guys due for for how important he was uh, you know, as a cultural icon, because he was a big deal. I think uh, I read that in the late seventies, when you're looking at professional athletes, probably the most recognizable athlete in the world was Muhammad Ali. Number two is probably Julius Serving, and I think um, you know. So that's that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about him tonight. Okay, yeah, sure. Let's get into it. All right. So Julius Serving, we'll just do a little bit of background uh, in terms of where he came from. If you're if you're not familiar with the with the background of uh, Julius Serving, uh, he grew up in Roosevelt, New York, o- over on Long Island, and in his autobiography, uh, Doctor J, the autobiography, he uh, so many athletes. When you look at LeBron James, he was a high school phenom. All right, everybody. He was on the cover of Sports Illustrated before he even went to the NBA. Doctor J took a different path. He in his autobiography, he stated that he uh, was not very tall when he graduated from high school. He was about 6'2", mm-hmm. and he ended up growing about four inches in college. So although he was a good high school basketball player, he wasn't necessarily a sought-out high school basketball player. Right. He only had one college that even looked at him. Correct. And that was the University of Massachusetts, who wasn't, uh, even though they were a Division One program, they weren't playing the Dukes or the North Carolinas or... Uh, Syracuse. I'm just thinking regionally here in the, the East. Villanovas, right? So they were they were um, kind of on the bottom rung, much different than the the way the college landscape is today. I and mean, now college basketball is much more evenly matched throughout, and that's why you see so many upsets in the NCAA tournament. Back in that in those days, if UMass made the NCAA tournament, they're probably getting bounced in the first round. However, they get this guy Julius Irving. Now, you know, you're talking freshman year. Now he's grown four inches. Now he's 6'6". So he puts up these monster numbers at the University of Massachusetts. And he's he's making a name for himself in the papers. The funny thing I thought about about, uh, Julius Irving is if you you hear the name Julius Irving, you don't necessarily think that he's black. Right. And in in the uh, NBA... 
NBA TV did a neat documentary. Oh, I saw the Georgia, documentary. I know which, what you're going to talk about. Where yeah. Billy Crystal, yep. <laughs> right? Billy Crystal, the the actor and comedian, he tells the story about how he hears it, it reads in the oh, newspaper. Yeah, he just reads the name. Reads in the newspaper about a bas- college basketball player named Julius Irving, who is putting up these phenomenal numbers at the University of Massachusetts. Obviously, UMass is not on TV, and there's really no coverage other than the box scores. And Billy Crystal says, "Oh." That's really neat that that there's finally a nice, good Jewish basketball player that's that's having success in college basketball, right. and that was that was what Billy Crystal thought. He he you know with based on the name Irving, he thought he was you know he was Jewish. So I thought that was I thought that was interesting. Yeah, now that uh, and, and nothing could be further from the truth because if you go back and look at the old photos of of Dr. J from that era, he has the biggest afro uh, that that. He, you can imagine, and it was, he was, Dr. J was always the epitome of cool, and he always was very stylish, so no matter what's going on in the times, you can see his style change, but back then, especially it would have been late 60s or early 70s, he, he had a monster afro. Yeah, he was very in tune to how he looked, and he talks about that in his book. He, he was quite proud of his appearance and being able to afford good clothes and having a very nice car when he was playing in the ABA that it was it was a source of pride for him because let's face it a lot of basketball players don't grow up with money so well, when it, when you finally do get some some money and some success yeah i mean they want to they want to splurge on themselves who could who could uh, fault them for that right and i think you know what you touch on there is you know part of the story with with Dr. J Julius serving is you know he doesn't come from wealth he doesn't come from money period i mean he's he's he comes from some poverty poverty his um his parents divorced um, when he was very young, and then eventually his father dies. So, you know, he's raised by a single mother, and they struggle to get by. And, you know, Dr. J is eventually becomes super successful, but, he, you know, he didn't have things handed to him. You talk about the fact he wasn't a big prospect. He also did not come from from an easy background and had to work and, and struggle to make things. So he goes <clears throat> goes on to the uh, to University of Massachusetts and and puts up big time numbers up there. It's where he starts to uh, excel as a as a basketball player. He is one of a handful of Division One college basketball players. If you go back and look it up, Julius Irving is one of a few that averaged over twenty points and over twenty rebounds per game in college basketball. If you look it up. Hasn't really been done since, uh, you know, the days that he played that, uh, you know, something like that could happen. But he's, he's one of a handful. There's not, there's not many players out there that average 20 and 20, which I think about what if a college basketball player did that today, what the, uh, what the media attention would be on a player like that on, on TV, whether it's ESPN or whether it's CBS. You know, you're talking about a guy that's averaging 20 and 20. He's going to be all over the place. I mean, there are even guys that are going in. They do average a double double. They make a big deal about that. So a twenty and twenty is is pretty awesome. And it's probably hard for people living today to understand that with what we have with the round the clock television coverage, we have the round the clock social media. You you're going to be found if you are that type of player. And in this time, this era, he was just kind of hidden up there in Massachusetts. He when he's in college, he the legend starts. Yes. Because he plays summer ball at the, the famous Rucker League. 
Rucker, Rucker Park. Rucker is, Park is where right. they had a summer league, and it still goes on today. And it's it's NBA players would come and play in this league, and it it was a who's who uh, of the players. And sometimes you would get these guys that would play in the league, in in the summer league that were probably better than a lot of the NBA players. They just never made it, and it was tough and hard fought. And here this kid shows up. Because when he's in college, even though he's putting up these big numbers, at that time, you weren't allowed to dunk in the NCAA. And anyone who knows Julius Erving, mean, that's, that's his biggest weapon. Right. So when he goes and he plays at Rucker Park, he, he is now allowed to showcase his number one tool that he has, and that is his ability to dunk. So the, the, the myth, the legend of Julius Erving starts to grow. And so they, they because he was doing these things at Rucker Park, they wanted to come up with they're like, what's your name, man? Like, what should we call you? Like Little Hawk. Like Connie they, Hawkins, he said that was one of the names that they were throwing around. They threw out Black Moses. Right. And he, he said, call me the doctor because him and his best friend, when they were in high school, they had nicknames for each other. And uh, he called himself, his friend called him the doctor. And um, his friend had a different nickname. He called him. He called him the professor. Professor. And yeah. Ju- and Julius said the reason was was because his his friend was up on the rules of basketball, and if ever there was a foul or something, he goes, no, 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 that's you know, I need like you know, rule twenty five B in 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 the rule book, and he goes, who are you, the professor? And so one was the professor. He was the professor, and then Julius became the doctor. Right. And so Julius Irving becomes known as the doctor, which eventually becomes. The doctor and then Dr. J. And then that's how the name stuck was Dr. J. But the fever, the the fever pitch that he caused at Rucker Park, they still, if if anybody was around during that time, they still talk about it to this day because there's a picture in the uh, documentary that I saw. There's a picture, somebody snapped it, and all you see is a sea of people sitting on buildings, hanging on fences, there must have been 10,000 people crammed around this little tiny park uh, basketball, you know, court out in the open uh, the open air. And there's just thousands and thousands to see of people just to watch one person. And that was to watch Julius Serving, this kind of relatively unknown college basketball player. And in his autobiography, he said the one thing that he never got to do at Rucker Park because uh, there was somebody else who was a big deal and also had a very high pedigree was a young man by the name of Lou Alcindor who be, ended up becoming Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Mm-hmm. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, arguably the greatest college basketball player of all time. If you look at his numbers, his wins, his stats, uh, and what he was able to accomplish at UCLA. And Julius Irving thought, you know, he's saying to himself, I think I can play against this guy. You know, he's considered the greatest basketball player in the world. And he's had the, the, I think he lost one game in his entire college career, two undefeated seasons and a one loss season, three national championships. Doc was saying, yeah, I think, I think I can play against this guy. And it's just funny that, you know, 30 years later, they end up after they're both long retired, they ended up playing a uh, pay-per-view one-on-one match against each other. And uh, Kareem did win, but you know, he was seven foot two. Right. Um, so, Doctor J starts starts making a name for himself in the uh, in the Rucker Park League. Meanwhile, he plays two seasons at UMass, and he has an opportunity presented to him where he has a chance to play professional basketball. Now, keep in mind, uh, like we had spoken about before, 
you know, Julius did not grow up a rich individual. You know, his mom worked very hard to raise her kids. She, she uh, valued education. And Julius saw the opportunity to play professional basketball. He felt that that's where he was, you know, destined to go. Um, his mom was not happy with him uh, when he decided to go to the ABA, which was the rival league to the NBA. And, you know, the ABA was, was very much an upstart league, sort of a fly by the seat of their pants. But as Julius said, had he gone straight to the NBA, who knows if there would have been a Julius Irving as the world got to know him because he was very much a team-oriented player. And if his NBA coaches would have forced him to play a team version of himself, he would have done it because that's the way he was raised he, as a basketball he, he player. He kind of did it at the end of his career. He did. Uh, he, he was very. He fit in. He fit into a structure. So he goes to this ABA. He's, he's drafted by and signed by the Virginia Squires, and they couldn't even afford their own gymnasium. They had to travel around the Virginia area and play nine games at this gym, nine games at this gym, and uh, but you know it was a chance for Julius Irving to leave college early and play professional basketball and this is where he really starts name of make a name for himself on the national scene and kind of what you were saying where how he would have turned out had he gone right to the NBA and and started playing the the slow down version of basketball which is what they were playing in the NBA at that time instead he goes to the ABA which by all accounts and once again it's by all accounts because there's not a lot of video out from those games yeah you know it's it's they, they didn't have a television deal so it's strictly by what was written and what you hear you know it so it's the legend but from all accounts it was just this wild brand of streetball and a lot of it was basically what would have gone on at rucker park was the streetball that was being played in the aba they were they were the league that because they knew they were starting out and from what i've read about the history of the aba is from day one these owners, they got into it solely with the intent of landing an NBA franchise. Sure. They were pushing for a merger from day one. Right. And the NBA was not, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. I've been, I've read under multiple sources that were around at that time and said, because there did end up, the, the, a, a merger did end up occurring in 1976. Julius Serving was the sole reason why the NBA said, okay, bring him over, because at that point, he was becoming bigger than the NBA. And they were afraid that uh, just based on Julius Irving, even though there were some great players in the ABA, and they found that they, they Doc said in 1972, they played an all-star game between the best players in the ABA and the best players in the NBA. And they said the ABA lost by two points. So they weren't, you know, in terms of their top-level talent, Right. there wasn't that much of a difference. But if you're the NBA, you see these owners, and they're just, some franchises are folding, and they're changing names, and they're changing venues, and they're, they're such a train wreck. There were, hard, there were very few financially stable franchises in the ABA. It's like, there were like maybe two or three. Well, the story that I've heard is, as a player... They said, if you, when you got your paycheck, you ran to the bank. Because, yeah, Doc said the same thing. Because you wanted to be one of the first guys on the team to cash a check. Because if you were the last guy, it might not ca- you might not be able to cash it. Yeah. And actually, in, in a little bit, I'm going to talk about one of the, probably the great uh, tragedies for one of the owners from the ABA as to how Julius Irving ended up becoming a 76er in the first place. 
you know, because they finally got the merger that they wanted. But just before we get ahead, before I get ahead of myself, just, you know, Doc goes to Virginia, makes, makes the all-star team as a rookie and has an even better season in year two. And at this point, uh, after year one, you know, you learn something about Julius Serving is that, you know, when it comes to signing contracts and being a businessman, he's not, he's not a pushover. And after year one, he ends up, uh, investigating into filing a lawsuit against the Virginia Squires because of uh, the guy, the agent who got him to sign with the Squires turned, turned out he was actually working for the Squires. So Julius Serving goes and signs a contract with the Atlanta Hawks of the NBA. Also during this time, Julius Serving gets drafted in the NBA first round number 12 pick to the Milwaukee Bucks. So the Milwaukee Bucks had the opportunity or had, had a chance, a slim chance, but you would have had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, mm-hmm. Oscar Robertson, and Julius Serving all on the same team. That would have been a pretty good team. Yeah, when you consider uh, the Big Three O, o and, yeah. and Jabbar are, are easily two of the top 15 players in NBA history. Right. It, you know, throw Doc in there, and you got three of the top 15 players in NBA history. Uh, yeah, they would have. I think they would have won a lot of games uh, yeah. if that would have happened. But, right, exactly. And maybe Cream doesn't end up with the Lakers. Yeah. So, you know, uh, Dr. J signs a contract with the Atlanta Hawks. It goes to court. Um, he actually plays three exhibition games with the Hawks, but then they uh, the court finds in favor of the Squire, so he has to go back, plays another season, and then again uh, because the Squires are financially in. You know, they're collapsing. So the uh, the owner has to sell him off and basically trades him to the New York Nets, who end up becoming the New Jersey Nets and then the Brooklyn Nets. But uh, so Doc gets uh, sold slash traded to the, the New York Nets. And really, you're talking at this point, this is arguably the greatest point of his career. The three seasons that he had at the Nets, uh, he was considered the greatest basketball player in the world at this point because uh, he won three championships uh, with the with the New York Nets. He won uh, two Most Valuable Player awards. He in one season he averaged. Let me make sure I have it here. Um, he finished in the top five, I believe, in points, rebounds, block shots, assists, steals, three point percentage, free throw percentage, and I'm trying to remember if I miss anything. Uh, but it was just about every stat- statistic that they kept a category for. He finished in the top five. And could go down as one of the greatest seasons, you know, for a professional basketball player of all time. Now, granted, the level of competition wasn't what was happening in the NBA. So, I mean, you kind of have to to balance that out a little bit. But, you know, the, the fact is he still was the dominant player in the league. Correct. But there were some, some guys who ended up moving straight over to the NBA with no issues whatsoever. And there's some big names that played in the ABA. Uh, Moses Malone played in the ABA. Dan Issel, Hall of, you know, I'm throwing out Hall of Famers here. George Gervin, Artis Gilmore, uh, you know, all these guys. Future are, Sixer Bobby Jones. Bobby Jones played in, in the ABA. So there's there's a long list, uh, and I'm going to bring up a name, David Thompson, yeah. as as somebody who who started out in the ABA as well. But there was there was serious talent in the in the ABA, and. I you know, I just mentioned Artis Gilmore, but Doc said in his autobiography that was the moment when he knew that he could play as a pro because he had you know he had the success in the Rucker League, 
But again, you're, you're playing against some great players, but you're also playing against some other guys as well. He said there was a point when he was at Virginia and he drives in the lane and he goes up and he's six foot six and he is going against Artis Gilmore, who's seven foot two. And he actually goes up for a dunk, rises, and he said he jumped in the air and he's just hanging in the air and he sees Gilmore's hand go up and then he sees Gilmore's hand start to go down. And meanwhile, Doc stayed above it and he slammed the ball over me because that's the moment I knew I could play against these guys. And he, that's one moment he knew that he was worthy of being, uh, you know, an elite professional basketball player. Right. So, uh, you know, he plays the three seasons with the, uh, with the New York Nets and really is the, it's this Julius serving because now he's playing in a more financially stable market. New York, obviously, he's getting a little bit more attention. And so there's more talk about Julius Irving. One of the things that actually was televised, and I believe it was on ABC Wide World of Sports, was they televised the ABA All-Star Game in 1976. Mm-hmm. That was the last year of the league. And they did a slam dunk contest. Right. The very first ever slam dunk contest to try and generate some interest in the, uh, in, in the league. And who wins it but? Dr. Jen. And who does he beat? He beats David Thompson. But there are other, other guys in it as well. I think Artis Gilmore was in the slam dunk competition. I, you know, I did actually watch the slam dunk competition that was there. And by today's standards, there there's some pretty pedestrian dunks. Except the one that Doc wins the contest with. Correct. And um, so the winning dunk is uh, Julius Serving. Now, keep in mind... Um, the slam dunk contest nowadays is done a couple of nights before the actual all-star game. This particular slam dunk contest that the ABA performed was done at halftime of their all-star game. So these guys already played 30, you know, uh, 24 minutes of basketball. So you would imagine, uh, so they didn't have the freshest of legs. All right. So just keep that in mind when, when Dr. J walks back and he said, he, counted off the steps and somebody said why'd you count off the steps he goes i thought it would look cooler (laughs) yeah i thought it would you know kind of add to the moment that's such a dr j line and and he's just like you know just i just thought it would look good so he he counts his steps back and then he starts running from the baseline on the other side runs across half court jumps at the foul line and then he uh he dunks it and Nobody had ever seen an athlete do that before. Take off from the foul line and slam it home. Yeah. So how, if anybody can can just, if you're listening, it is 15 feet from the foul line to the basket. So you're talking 15 feet, you're jumping, and then you're staying high enough in the air that you can actually dunk on a 10-foot rim by jumping 15 feet away. It's a pretty remarkable feat. Yeah. Something that is still shown to this day and that uh, NBA players emulated or, or tried to emulate. Michael Jordan very famously did the same thing, and they made such a big deal about it. Doc actually did it in the very first NBA slam dunk contest. I believe that was 1984. Uh, the th- three or four, I'm not sure which one. So yeah. we're talking Doc in his 30s, Yeah, and he did that did that takeoff from from the foul line. So uh, quite, a, quite a remarkable feat, but as it was said, you know, the the, the – Dr. J was probably the one person that was responsible for the, that they finally decided to do the merger. So, uh, so Doc gets, now teams are starting to fight for him. Uh, the New York Nets, who controlled his uh, rights, 
they decide to, they, in order to join the NBA, they have to pay a very exorbitant uh, merger fee of $4 million. The owner, Roy Bowe, who, who owned the team, he, uh, he was having a hard time coming up with the money for the merger. And they were also, the, the NBA ruled that they had to pay a fee to the New York Knicks. Right, correct. Because the New York Knicks were already the NBA team in New York, and they were going to be a second team in that area, so they said you're going to because you're going to take ticket holders away from the Knicks, you have to pay a flat up, a straight up, a front up fee to the Knicks. And do you know? I don't know if you came across in your in your research who they, what they did as an offer to the uh, to the Knicks as to to, to no, solve I, that. I didn't see that. They offered Julius Irving straight up. And and the Knicks said no. And Nick said nope. Give us the cash. Can you can you can you know looking back on that now? Could you yeah. imagine one of the greatest players of all time? And and the Nets are saying, okay, we can't afford to keep Julie serving and join the NBA and pay you. Here, you take Doc and cancel our payment. That just straight up, right? Cancel our payment. And the Knicks are like, no, we want the money. And uh, I believe the owner of the Knicks later on said that was yeah, obviously the dumbest movie. One, he one ever of the made. biggest, one of the biggest mistakes he ever made in his life. And the Knicks haven't won a championship since. Correct. I mean, they they won obviously before in the seventies with with Clyde Frazier, but they they haven't won a, won there. And and you know uh, you know obviously Doc goes on to become the biggest name in the NBA for like the next few years. Correct. So now there becomes a bidding war between teams in the NBA. So Julius uh, and his agent, um, you know, they start basically shopping themselves around. Arguably, you could say one of the reasons why the the merger happened so late is because there was a, a lawsuit that was filed by uh, by an NBA player as far as free agency goes. So until that lawsuit was settled, that's uh, otherwise they said it with with Julius Irving that the merger probably would have happened a little bit sooner. But once it finally got settled, that's when the merger happened. So now you have Doc, who's essentially, he's not a free agent, but now the NBA has given the Nets the okay for him to be shopped around. And who is the one team that ends up uh, spending the most money to sign Julius Serving would be our... Your Philadelphia 76ers. Our Philadelphia 76ers. The owner at the time uh, was a gentleman by the name of Fitz Dixon. Yeah. And Fitz uh, was an avid sports fan, grew up very wealthy. He was a blue blood. He grew up on the main line. And he, uh, but he, he had an ownership stake in the Eagles at one point. And he always wanted to own his own professional team. So he ended up buying the Philadelphia 76ers. And knew nothing about basketball. Exactly. So the general manager for the Sixers at the time was a gentleman by the name of Pat Williams. Uh, somebody we, you and I got to meet many Absolutely, years ago. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. He, and, he came to our um, our soccer banquet. He was the speaker uh, the one year. We, uh, I'm actually s- sitting on our table right now. Is the book that we bought from him? Uh, oh yes, yeah, from that, that night? dinner, and it says to the high family. Yours on the victory side, Pat Williams, seventy sixers. It says to the high family. How did that end up in your possession? I I don't know, but All I've right. had it for uh, what almost forty years now. Okay. So. Um, but it's called We Owed You One, and it is uh, the, the Uphill Struggle of the 76ers. It's a great book. 
Uh, it's obviously very dated because it was written in the uh, early 80s. As I'm looking at the book, it's a little, it's well-worn. You've lost the jacket to it. It's, yeah. it's kind of lovingly tattered, which that's a good sign. That means you've read the book. But it, yeah, a uh, uh, couple dozen times, probably yeah. at least. So Pat is talking to uh, Fitz and he goes up and he says, we have the opportunity to get this player, uh, Julius Irving. And so he tells him, all right, well, how much... Uh, so he goes, okay, who is he? <laughs> right. Basically, he's like, tell me, tell me what you know about him. And, and Pat's like, well, you know, he's kind of like, uh, you know, he starts going through all these, uh, you know, explanations of like, you know, think of the greatest athlete, you know, greatest baseball player, the greatest football player, the greatest this or that. And um, so fits the next question is, well, how much is it going to cost? And, and Pat said in, in the book, We Owed You One, that even though he was uh, grew up a, you know, a millionaire many times over, grew up in an extremely wealthy family, money was never an issue. Uh, Fitz always had an eye for the dollar. He was, he was you know, thrifty. And so it wasn't going to be the easiest conversation to uh, get the, uh, you know, to get Julie serving because keep in mind, the year before, uh, Fitz had agreed on, at that time, which was one of the largest contracts in NBA history, for a player by the name of George McGinnis, who also came from the ABA with the Indiana Pacers, and the Sixers laid out a boatload of money at the time for McGinnis to be their star player. And what kind of got the conversation going with uh, with with uh, Pat Williams and the Sixers is McGinnis came from the ABA, had a great regular season, and a horrible playoffs. Uh, McGinnis... I don't know if you remember McGinnis as a, as a player, Sean. Sure, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. The thing that always stood out to me about McGinnis was his was his jump shot because he always had that one handed jump shot. He did. He did. And um, you know, Doc in his book said about McGinnis that if you're trying to get a mental image of what George McGinnis looked like back then, uh, picture Dwight Howard in the NBA today. Yeah, I was. I was. He was. He was a very thick power forward. That was a finesse player. Unbelievable natural strength. But wasn't necessarily a banger. Right. He, the- he liked he he preferred the jump shot over you know to bang on the glass. And, and just uh, I I do know which player that Williams compared him to. He said to Fitzdim Dixon, and he's like, uh, you know, it's like, well, is this guy any good? He goes, he's the Babe Ruth of basketball. Yeah, and um, so George McGinnis uh, had a horrible playoff series. And during that season, when uh, um, you know McGinnis is uh, playing, the Sixers had brought back a, a player who was very successful for them in the in the '60s by the name of Billy Cunningham. So Billy ended up blowing out his knee, and but maintained some close ties to the team. And uh, Billy was one of the first guys that kind of mentioned to Pat, you know, uh, you know George doesn't really have that killer killer attitude for for what it takes to win in the playoffs. So they were, uh, you know, it kind of got in the, the Sixers thinking about looking elsewhere. And now now the ABA is finally, teams are, are being uh, brought into the NBA now. And now all of a sudden you're presented with this opportunity to have Julius Irving be on your basketball team. But it's going to cost you. And the um, so now we get back to the conversation. Pat okay. Williams, the, you're talking the Babe Ruth of basketball. Right. And so he's waiting for 
fits to get very angry, says, okay, what's it going to take? And it's going to take $3 million cash to the Nets, and then it's going to take $3 million to sign Julius to play on the team. And he said, you know, Fitz sits back in his chair and he says, well, if you think we have to do it, then we have to do it. And, um, you know, Pat said it was like one of the most exhilarating moments of his, of his professional life where he, you know, was able to tell everybody that we got, we, we got this guy. So now you have uh, Julius Irving joining George McGinnis on the uh, 76ers. And this, this team becomes a circus. They become, they set attendance records all over the NBA because of all the characters that they have on this team. And um, if you don't remember the basketball player, Daryl Dawkins, you should look him up sometime, check out YouTube. Uh, Daryl Dawkins was a physical phenomenon. Yeah. Type in Daryl Dawkins backboard and you'll get to see a series of him smashing backboards. In fact, they invented the collapsible rim because Daryl Dawkins was routinely, uh, when he would dunk really hard, just smashing the backboards and, and ripping the hoops out. So the Sixers, they had taken, um, they drafted Daryl Dawkins out of the out of high school. Correct. St. Petersburg, Florida. And the reason that they did that is because the ABA, in an attempt to get some of the best talent away from the NBA, they started drafting you know players out of high school, one of which happened to be the season before, was a young Moses Malone. Yes. And he ended up playing in the ABA and had a huge year. So the Sixers kind of got thinking and said, ah, you know, I think we're going to, they're going to try it. And they actually became the first NBA, NBA team to draft a high school player out of, uh, out of high school. Mm-hmm. They were the first NBA team to do that. It had been done in the ABA, but not in the NBA. So they get Daryl Dawkins. Who's, who's very, you know, a, a chatty guy. He had a lot of cool one-liners. He would, he would name his dunks. He would, you know, he had different nicknames for himself. He wore a lot of jewelry out in the court. So Pat Williams tells a story about when, when he, the very first time he ever called Daryl Dawkins and the phone rings and he said, Daryl picks up and he goes, Hey, this is Dawkins. I'm ready to talk. <laughs> so Pat Williams, who's pretty, pretty quick himself. He says, well, hello there. I'm Pat and I'm ready to chat. <laughs> so, he, but he said, you know, just, th- and this is coming from an 18 year old kid. Yeah. Chocolate Thunder. Wasn't that the nickname he that, gave himself? That was the basketball that we had that, uh, that was signed by Chocolate Thunder, yeah. Daryl Dawkins. <laughs> right. That we used to play with outside. So Julius goes to this team and now all of a sudden the, the Sixers who just a few years before in 1972 set the record that still stands true today. The worst NBA team in NBA history, nine and 70, 73. Worst NBA. Now, the Sixers of about seven years ago came pretty darn close. They were the 10 and 72ers. And they were trying to lose. And uh, But they were not the nine and 73ers. Yeah. So, but Pat Williams uh, had done a really good job of getting different pieces into this team, but it was still a work in progress. But so Doc joins this team, and now you have. Uh, George McGinnis, who was the established star from the year before. You had uh, Daryl Dawkins, who is a chatterbox, immensely talented, but just too up and down. As, Very inconsistent. As, as Charles Barkley would say, he was a knucklehead. And then you also had a guy by the name, uh, a player by the name of Lloyd Free, who ended up changing his name years later to World B Free. Uh, but he was the kind of guy, when you're looking, thinking about uh, current NBA players, uh, of guys who could, when they got hot, they could just shoot from anywhere. 
you know, I think of Steph Curry, uh, you know, of a guy who can just, you know, 30, 35 feet away. Uh, Lloyd Free, later to become World B, was one of those types of scorers where he could just, you know, on any given night, he could drop 40 uh, with no sweat. But he was another guy who, who was a lot of, tra- you know, did a lot of trash talking. They also had a guy who was previously a number one draft pick by the name of Doug Collins. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately for Doug Collins, it had nothing to do with his ability because when he played, he had really good numbers and he was always, always an all-star. His problem was he couldn't stay healthy. And so he had developed foot problems early in his career. And unfortunately, you know, with medicine being what it was back then, just never really, um, you know, was able to get the career. I think that he probably should have had, had he stayed healthy and it was, it was kind of a shame, but, and I think you had made the comment, um, to me when we were talking about it the other night that you said, you know, they were Doug Collins fans and they said, well, you know, if Doug could only come back or, you know, Collins is back or, you know, it was one of those, one of those things where it's, it was sort of that thing that Sixers fans always were kind of on the fence about. Sure. Like, you, they'd say, uh, you know, did the Sixers win last night, last night? Oh yeah. Collins played. He had, he had 29. Yeah. And then he went and play for three weeks. Yeah. I mean, he would just, he couldn't stay healthy. And uh, he also had a, a very reliable player by the name of Steve Mix, who uh, was the, a mayor long, the long-time Sixers uh, color announcer with Mark Zumoff. But Steve Mix, uh, you know, had this one spot on the floor, and if he could get to it, he was unstoppable. It was like this little mid-range kind of jump shot. Steve Mix was this six-eight power forward, played a little small forward sometimes, but usually power forward, and they would always call it Mixville. If he could get to a spot, and then he was the mayor of Mixville. Well, on this team of very colorful, uh, you know, superstar type players, he was the one guy who probably had to work the hardest just to get into the NBA to become as, and at this point he had established himself as a, as a solid NBA player, a, you know, a occasional all-star. So you had him on the team. Well, importantly, he becomes Doc's best friend. So, you know, that definitely helped him stick around the team for a while. Yeah. And so this is, this is, is coached by a gentleman by the name of Gene Shu, who ended up coaching in the NBA for many, many years. Mm-hmm. So this is a wild team. And the NBA had not seen this. Now, the, this was kind of like the flavor of the ABA now kind of coming into the NBA. And, you know, to their credit, the F- NBA fans really took to it. But the team to watch was the 76ers, and that was for one person. Dr. J. That was for Dr. J. The Sixers are kind of known as the greatest show on earth because, like you said, it was a circus atmosphere. They kind of rushed their way through the finals. They, they, uh, you know, they win 50 games for the first time since the uh, Will Chamberlain Sixers in the 60s, and then they find themselves in the NBA Finals against the – the Portland Trailblazers, and they take on uh, a, a player who kind of came from a, a famous uh, background, UCLA, Bill Walton, a guy who uh, had an unbelievable ability, but unfortunately had really bad feet, much like Doug Collins. And he ended up staying in the NBA for a number of years, but uh, you know the feet ended up giving way. He was just physically broken down. and uh, But at this point, He's still uh, Bill Walton is still quite a uh, quite a formidable player, an all-star player, and they meet in the finals, and the Sixers quickly jump out and win the first two games, and you know Sixers fans are are you know kind of celebrating already, like hey we're on our way. They and then reality starts to set in because if you are a Gen Xer and you are a fan of Philadelphia sports teams, you know 
disappointment from time to time. Oh yeah. And if you remember this, if you're old enough to remember this time, I'm sure we're, we're kind of reliving a painful memory because the Sixers go from being up 2-0 to losing four straight to a much, to an inferior uh, basketball team. And the, uh, the, and part of it was due to the collapse of some players, particularly uh, as many saw it around the Sixers, George McGinnis, who uh, Doc was brought in to kind of compliment, but uh, McGinnis was clearly again for the second consecutive year, kind of kind of coming up short. Well, you talk about an inferior team, but m- maybe because while Portland did not have the talent that the Sixers had, they were known as the t- as playing a team style of basketball by their coach, by their coach Jack Ramsey. Jack Ramsey. He he, they they had one star, Bill Walton, and then they filled in around Bill Walton. And everybody played a role. With the Sixers of that team, you had all these individuals. And the, one of the comments that, that I read was, if you got the ball in your hands on the Sixers, you were going to shoot. You were not looking to pass and move the ball around. It, it, you know, the, the second you got it, it was going up. Yeah, and you know, there were so many guys that were trying to make names for themselves that you're right. And, and I had heard that as well, that uh, Jack Ramsey – who ended up coaching for decades and was one of the, when he retired, not only was, you know, one of the highest uh, winning coaches in the NBA, but he's also one of the highest winning coaches in college too. Sure. I mean, we're talking about a guy that, that coached in basketball for probably 50 years when you combine the, the college and the NBA. So yeah, he preached a very much a team oriented um, style of, of basketball and, and yeah, they, they want it. And, when you talked about one star player and pieces built around, if you're a Sixers fan, that should sound familiar because, you know, the Sixers ended up making a, a title, not a, not a winning a title, but uh, with Allen Iverson in 2001 with that team, because it was, it was Allen. And then those pieces were put in by Larry Brown to compliment Allen Iverson. It's very similar. And for uh, Portland, they ended up winning the championship. Right. And the, so the Sixers end up losing the series to Portland. Of course, they could have won it at the end, but they lose because instead of Dr. J taking the shot, George McGinnis takes the shot. If you go back and you look at the video of it, it's, it's that stupid one-handed jump shot that he, he shot from, from way out. And as a result, the Sixers kind of rethink things, and they decide they're going to go in the team direction. So there is the, um, one of the things that happened in the finals was not only did, did Doc play in the finals, but he played extremely well. Right. Like he clearly, uh, just based on his, his playing, uh, you know, although McGinnis was considered the, the star of the team and, and Doc was second to uh, McGinnis at that particular moment, you couldn't deny the fact that Doc was the you know the star in in that finals, and there's one one play in particular, and it is on YouTube. If you ever want to check it out, there's there's a dunk that Doc does in the finals. To me, is one of the more impressive dunks. Now, in terms of flash, is there's no flash to it, but keep in mind, you know, Julius Serving at six foot six, six foot seven, depending on what you read, what publication. Um, he was over 200 pounds, which back then was not a small player. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that Doc doesn't get credit for is how strong he was. And in this particular play, he uh, he it break, he's on a fast break, so he's basically on a on a dead sprint. Bill Walton is underneath the basket, waiting for him to arrive. So they jump at the same time, and you can see it. It's one of the first times I think it's. 
besides the ju- the the dunk from the free throw line, this may be one of the first dunks that you actually get to watch on TV or on a video clip of Julius serving as a professional player. But they jump at the same time, and again, Bill Walton is just a shade under seven feet. He's six eleven, so they both rise at the same time. And when you see the 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 elevation, because not only could Doc jump, but he also had these extremely long arms. And he could get the, he could hold the ball so high in the air, and you just see this shorter player just fly right over top of this this big center, and you see again, like he describes in his book with Artis Gilmore, you see Walton's hand go up, and then Doc is still going up as Walton's hand starts to come down, and he just throws down such such an incredible dunk, and it wasn't necessarily artistry, but it was just. You know, the beautiful thing about Julius serving the basketball players as, as finesse and as artistic as he could look at times as a player, there was that, you know, ferocity, that, that ferociousness in him where he could throw down a dunk like that at any given point in a game. All the great players have to have that. I mean, to be able to, to compete at the top level, to be kind of the alpha dog in the room, you have to have that. So, you know, doc does well and the team does not, they lose. And, so the advertising campaign that they come out with, the very, very famous, if you are from Philadelphia, they, they came up with it. And it's memorable. People still talk about it to this day, is they had, is they had Doc come out. And basically the, the ad campaign for the next season was an apology. And the, the slogan for that next season was, we owe you one. That was the, that was the slogan. Brilliant campaign if they would have gone out and actually won the championship. Sure. But unfortunately for Julius Serving and the 76ers, it is uh, ends up becoming a seven-year saga for Julius and for the Sixers to actually finally win that elusive championship. They just unfortunately couldn't get it done. Just when it looked like they were going to uh, take that helm in the NBA, a couple of players pop in from college, the hick from French Lick, and the kid from Michigan State. You know, you got Magic Johnson from Michigan State going to the Lakers. You got Larry Bird going to the Boston Celtics. And now all of a sudden the 76ers now are part of this three team mm-hmm. race yeah. to, to see who's going to uh you know to be the the, the dynasty of the that particular uh you know the next ten years. So you know, history always has a way of rewriting itself in favor of the winners. So, if you, you, the winners get to get to write the history, is usually what is said. So, as as you know, we're you know thirty, forty years looking back, everyone remembers the Lakers and the Celtics. But what they forget is you're one hundred percent correct. The Sixers were the third team. It, anybody that followed the sport at that time would have said all three teams were basically equal. It, it it was one of those three teams was always going to be in the finals. It, it the the Sixers and Celtics would play some incredible playoff series, and it, it was pretty much you know decided you know that it was going to be the Lakers in the finals. You know, occasionally the Rockets might make it, but for the most part, it was the, one of those three teams. And what made those games great, if you were a Sixers fan, is they were so different in how they were played, because you in the as the Sixers became more evolved in the 80s and as they, as Pat Williams and the Sixers management 
started to get rid of some of those colorful characters and actually surround Julius with, uh, you know, with an efficient and effective basketball team. You know, Gene Shu gets taken out as the coach. Billy Cunningham comes back as the head coach. He brings in somebody uh, by the name of Chuck Daly as one of his assistants, who, if you are an NBA basketball fan, he went on to win two championships with the Detroit Pistons in the late 80s. So they, they started to, to formulate this, this awesome team. They traded George McGinnis straight up for Bobby Jones, uh, kind of an unknown at that time, but Bobby Jones was considered by many to be the best defensive player in, the, in uh, basketball at that point. They called him the White Shadow. He is you know, still kind of considered the, the best defensive player of his generation. And he, he was a, a great athlete that, um, you know, wasn't necessarily, didn't have the, the most evolved offensive game in the world, but he could run, he could dunk, and he could lock down people defensively. And Bobby Jones was great on the fast break, yes. which is what the Sixers ended up. They started to create this team that not only could play a half-court offense, but they could also run with the Lakers. The half-court offense would be typically how the games will go against the Celtics and Larry Bird. And meanwhile, the fast break uh, style of game is how they would compete against the Los Angeles Lakers and Magic Johnson. As uh, Pat Williams called it in his one chapter, he called it the uh, Black Ties, which was the, you know, the, the suave uh, forum against the Lakers. You know, you had the, you had the, uh, the fast break. Um, it was showtime with, with the Lakers and Pat Riley. And then you had the black eyes with the Boston Celtics mm-hmm. where it was very much a slowed down and those games were physical. I mean, you you know, it's one of those things. You just, today's sports just doesn't – there's been such a crackdown on kind of eliminating that. It's a shame. But I'm telling you, it when you call it the black eye rivalry, uh, I don't think that's an understatement because there's quite a famous uh, moment where Larry Bird, who's one of the greatest trash talkers of NBA history – uh, where Doc and him get into a fight. They, there's punches thrown, and uh, that was at the it was at the Boston Garden, and Julius was having not a very good game, and uh, he was getting quite frustrated. And Larry Bird was letting him know it, as Larry Bird was was known to do. And Doc, <laughs> Doc got fed up, and and this was late in his career, you know. Right. And uh, you know Julius at this point had kind of carved himself quite a reputation he for was being the ambassador the right yeah i mean exactly right he was he was the nba you know jerry west was the logo but in a lot of the ways dr j was the statesman for the nba he was always considered the classiest player in the league and i think you know as, as we mentioned before before the uh addition of magic johnson and larry bird he really was the face of professional basketball in the 1970s there's a uh, sports not sports illustrated cover but there's a NBA ba- or there's a basketball trade publication picture that I came across and this is when Doc was still with the Nets and it talked about the merger between the NBA and the ABA and they had the best player in the NBA and Dr. J who was the best player in the ABA Get, can you guess who the best player in the NBA was at that particular time. So what year would that have been? It would have been about 1975. 75. Oh, boy. Was it Alcindor? Was he still? Was it Kareem? It wasn't It wasn't Kareem. It was Dave Cowens. Dave Cowens of the Celtics? Of the Celtics. Oh, yeah, that's right. I think he did have he an MVP. He won the NBA. Because yeah, it, it, yeah. it was a picture of the two MVPs from that. He was like a 6'8", six, 6'9", six, center. But, I mean, you want to talk about yeah. comparisons between – Kind of the old slow NBA right. and the and the hip and cool 
uh, ABA. To me, that that is the quintessential picture right sure. there between the two. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Dr. J, for the first 10 years of his professional career, was the face of his sport. So here's why, you know, you know, we talk pop culture and we talk Gen X pop culture here on this podcast. And I think Dr. J fits into that because he was a lot more than just a basketball player, just an athlete. You know, in a way, he kind of was the NBA's, I don't want to say Jackie Robinson, because, you know, Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier, but it was very important for, for you know, the NBA to clean up its image. Because in the 70s, it had a lot of drug scandals. It was considered a sport that wasn't marketable to, to white audiences. And then you have Dr. J come in, who was just this great spokesman. And he, not only is he a great player, but he's a great ambassador for the game. And he did whatever the NBA asked him to do. He did every promo they ever asked him to do. And he did it well. Um, Bobby Jones, in one of the articles that I came across, was interviewed not too long ago about, about Julius serving. And he said, uh, you know, what he appreciated the most about Julius was probably what held him back for maybe some of the other great players of all time. And the fact that he was too nice of a teammate to, uh, become like the Michael Jordan or the Kobe Bryant or the Larry bird, the guy who's basically going to curse at his teammates right. and say, you better win this game, you know, that kind of held high, hold them to such a high expectation. And he said, you know, Doc was my friend. And, you know, it's funny because Doc in his, in his autobiography, he said there were two people in his life that he didn't curse around. Bobby Jones and, and his else? mom. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he said, uh, you know, every once in a while, he's, you know, somebody would do something and they would let it slip because Bobby Jones is a very devout Christian. And Bobby would say, you know, guys, I don't approve of that. And they would say, sorry, Bobby. <laughs> he said that's the only person that you know, they would actually, you know, be. Because he said, if you think about that Sixers team, you had Moses Malone, you had Billy Cunningham. And, and Julius said, you know, Billy Cunningham could set records for cursing. Sure. And, uh, you know, Moses Malone didn't say much, but usually what came out was a swear word. Mm -hmm. So it was just kind of funny that when they were around Bobby Jones, they all... That's right. Kept it clean. Yeah. So, but I mean, Bobby, I think he makes, I think he makes a valid point that, uh, you know, because Doc was, he was, he was first and foremost, he was a teammate. Well, they talk about after they lost to the Trailblazers that Doc made everyone on the team go over to the, uh, to the winning locker room and con congratulate the guys. And he said, I think it was World B Free said, because we don't want to go. He said, what are you talking about? You know, we, World B is like, I'm, I'm from, I'm from, New York, I, I, I'm, I'm going to fight these guys. He goes, no, we're going to go over and we're going to congratulate these guys and show some dignity. And that kind of sums up how Dr. J was. You're, you're right. He wasn't the Kobe type of player who's going to get in somebody's face and scream, but he did command respect. Well, I think it's important. And it was one of the questions I wanted to ask you, because obviously we grew up in around Philadelphia and we have people that listen to this podcast that are from the Philadelphia area, or whether you're a Philly sports fan or, or what else. But here's my question. In a city that is so famously tough on star athletes, why do you believe Dr. J was so loved and never criticized in Philadelphia, even though he only ever won that one championship? I mean, he would get criticized some for that because at least the sports writers who in Philadelphia are so tough and they would never let him forget that we owe you one. It was like just a constant headline and always put out there. And you could say that, you know, you compare him to another athlete like Mike Schmidt. Very similar in how they approached things, and they were both incredibly talented, incredibly smooth, kind of 
you know, kind of dignified, but the fans didn't embrace Mike Schmidt the way they did Dr. J. No, and, and the point that you made was that the sports writers were hard on Dr. J. Yeah. But I remember when we would go to the Sixers games as kids that there was none of that. I mean, we would go to Phillies games, and people would let Schmidt have it. And and maybe, and I think part of that is, you know, Mike Schmidt was kind of a defensive. Uh, you know, he maybe he was he would take it personally. Where Doc, I think, always had time for the fans, and always had time for kids, and that was always the vibe that we got. Uh, you know, you talk about the fact that the Sixers trained here in Lancaster. Me and my knucklehead friends. We go down to the motel, that, well, the hotel that they stayed in, and we would literally run around the hallways trying to get autographs. And Doc was classy. You know, Doc always had time for the kids. He never yelled at you and, and you know, said you shouldn't be here. He was, it, you know, I think there was so much of, as, as kids, little kids, we wanted to be like Doc. It, you know, we would do his moves out on the playground. But it was it was more than that. It's like you know, one, he was one of the first athletes to have a shoe deal. I had Dr. J Converse. Yeah, we did. Yeah, I mean that. I that, remember that. As soon as I you know, you know, was able to go out and buy those and allowed to buy those, I wanted them. It's he just seemed very approachable uh, for, uh, from from the perspective of a fan. It, I don't know. He just had that intangible. He just had that that cool factor where Schmidt might have been aloof. And Doc just came across as the coolest guy in the room. And I think maybe the difference between, because Mike Schmidt is my favorite baseball player of all time. And and like we talked about, he got, by, by many fans, even to this day, they'll still call Schmidt a bum. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody, I would be surprised if anybody would call Dr. J a bum no. from when he was a player. No. And the the, I think to me, what stands out to me about Julius Serving, the the athlete Julius Serving, the basketball player, was he pretty much delivered something you never saw before on any given night, whether it was on watching it on TV or seeing it live and in person. He would do something on the floor that nobody else has done, and it would just be improvisational. It would be uh, something that sort of unscripted, but yet with, within the framework of the game itself. Exactly, and. Um, you know, whether it was how he held the basketball or, or like you said, with the finger roll or the famous, you know, basically going baseline. And he talks about, he didn't plan that, you know, basically he, he went around the baseline because two defenders came over and blocked him from, from continuing his dribble. He was stuck at that point. But then as he jumped, he realized that he had a chance to get his, cause he had such long arms. He had a chance to get his arm up and around and nobody put a hand out there to knock the ball away. So that's how that famous shot ended up uh, coming to be. Um, but I think he delivered, kind of delivered what the fans were hoping to get from him. And as far as we talked pop, pop culture, you know, it wasn't just Sixers fans that raved about Dr. J. It's like when the Sixers would go on the road, they would sell out all over the place for one reason only, and that was to see Julia Serving. Um, you know, famous Run DMC, mm-hmm. a song from their album Raising Hell, which we just talked about in, in our previous episode, was, uh, you know, in their song You Be Illin'. Uh, you know, they're going, Run's going to Madison Square Garden. He's not going there to see Patrick Ewing. He's going there to see Dr. J, and that's right there in the song. You, you had said quite a few times about Curtis Blow in the song uh, Basketball with. Right. Uh, you know, he was, he was the, on the, 
on the cutting edge of pop culture, even in his later in his in his career, as uh, he was approaching the very end. Well, I I heard a comment that people would say, you know, Michael Jordan was always the player in name. That who would you start a team with? And then the comment was, Dr. J is the player you'd start a league with. And he was, that's why I said, you know, in a way, he was almost like a Jackie Robinson because he had the burden of the NBA on his shoulders. It, it, at a very key time in the history of the NBA, he was the, the face. He was the, the player that when he would go into every city, he was going to get mobbed. He was going to have to do interviews. He was going to have to sign autographs. And he, was not, he never seemed to tire of it. And he never looked at it, or, I mean, not to the outside, to us, you know, watching him, it didn't seem like a burden to him. He always just seemed happy to do it. Other question for you. Um, has there ever been another athlete or, or basketball player uh, to, to meet or exceed that level of importance to its league than Julius Irving? Basketball? Then you're talking late, late 70s. Late, can you think of any other athlete that represented as much to his sport as Julius Serving did at that time in the NBA, because like you said, the NBA before Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, it was pretty much a one-man show in terms of viewership. And, uh, you know, Julius Serving in the 1970s, he carried the ABA. And in the late 70s, he carried the NBA. So for 10 years, you, argue, you could argue and say that he was, you know, the face of, of his sport, that being basketball. Is there any other athlete that you could think of that, that would even get to that level? No, I can't. You know, I, I can think of, if you want to name NBA players who are better, sure, you can come up with a list. You can throw out Jordan, you can throw out Bird, you can throw out Magic, LeBron. Uh, but as far as having to carry the team, the the, the league itself, that's in the NBA, I can't think of anyone. I can't think of anyone in another sport that would have had the responsibility of whether a league succeeds or not on basically how one player not only performs on the court, but how he performs off of the court, you know, with, with all the, the, the drug issues that were happening. And mm -hmm. as a little kid, I was aware of that. I remember reading about these scandals in the newspaper when I'm eight, nine, ten years old, and it seemed to me that this was just this wild bunch and, you know, this, this, this sport is just out of control. And then you'd have somebody like Dr. J who was, you know, just seemed like the type of guy who would, you know, tell me to drink my orange juice and uh you know tang and and you know go do some laps and so it, it's it i can't think of whether it was would be the nfl or, or major league baseball or, or the nhl I, I can't think of another player there's only one other athlete that i can really think of that was as important to his sport but you talked about the away from the court you know off the field was you know the person that comes to my mind is babe ruth okay you know he was that important to baseball in terms of creating popularity but he couldn't even come close to matching what uh, you know what what Dr. J was doing off the court in terms of uh, representation, in terms of business ventures. Uh, you know, Doc always seemed to have his act together. Dr. Chapstick. <laughs> That's right, Dr. Pepper. Doc, yeah, it, you know the the famous commercial for those of you who don't know what we're talking about is, you know, Doc in this one commercial he's he's walking down the airport and all, of course kids are running up. Dr. J, Dr. J, he goes, you can call me Dr. Chapstick. And he pulls out a you know chapstick, uh -huh. and that's the commercial. And so there, there for a while, it was kind of the joke, Doctor Chapstick. Uh, I I referenced the HBO series Winning Time, and a lot of you listening will will have seen that. It was really good, uh, but it was in, in a lot of ways everybody gets bashed 
in that series. You know, Magic Johnson doesn't come across looking good. He comes across as a womanizer. Um, uh, Jerry West comes across looking insane as, as to, you know, the eventual general manager of the Lakers. He's just out of control. I heard Jerry West might actually be suing the people <laughs> from winning time that he looks so bad. The, uh, you know, Norm Nixon comes across looking petty and jealous. Everybody looks bad. Larry Bird looks horrible in this piece, except Dr. J. They and I was waiting for it. I'm like, oh, please don't don't bash Dr. J. Yeah. Dr. J came across, as I said earlier, the coolest guy in the room. He just came across as this awesome guy. You know, Julius Irving to me as a young sports fan came the to me when watching him play, and I wasn't somebody that was very much on the arts. You know, I, I couldn't tell you one who painted one painting compared to somebody else but watching julius irving play basketball it was watching great art in my opinion because you you look at he had the um you know the the ability and just seemed to have the kind of like a great jazz artist and in in pat williams book you know he compared julius irving to grover washington jr who was from philadelphia very famous saxophone musician and the fact that uh, Grover and Julius had developed somewhat of a friendship, you know, during during their time there, and so he, he did make that connection between between uh, a great jazz artist and Julius Irving, and there's some a lot of similarities now there, but it, you know, I, watching him play basketball to me it was like, you know, maybe somebody would appreciate great poetry, maybe somebody would appreciate watching a great movie, um, but like I said, at some point when you would watch dr j play and it to me it was like watching great art and and that's that's probably what i'll what i always remember about him and hopefully you know if you're a gen xer and you remember what doc did you know all those things kind of come into play because you know classy always comes to mind but i I, to me it was like a guy he wasn't just playing a sport like he was like he was painting a canvas sometimes with some of the moves that he would make on the floor sure he you know, he, he definitely, and, and I heard that as well, you know, people would compare it to jazz because while you say he didn't plan out his moves ahead of time, he practiced his moves. So just as with a, a musician, you might have practiced your notes, you don't necessarily know the order that they're going to go in. But, you know, Doc was always very famous for, for working on all his finger roll moves and, and you know, his, his, his post-ups and things like that in practice so that when he needed them, he could pull them out. Yeah, so... Um Julius finally wins his first and only NBA championship at the age of 33. And to me, what, what always stands out in my mind, because at that point, he was not the the true front and center. I mean, no, granted, he, he was the face of the team still. But he wasn't the best player on the team. He, um, you know, Harold Katz, the owner of the team, brought in Moses Malone going into that season. And that really will go down as one of the greatest NBA single season teams of all time. I would put that team up against anybody. That played, you know, that you would consider amongst the great sure. NBA teams because that team could do everything. They were great defensively when they wanted to be. They were great uh, post up half court because they had Moses. They were phenomenal on the fast break. Finally, you had the team that not only could fend off a tough team like the Celtics, but they could run past a team like Showtime and the Lakers. Could you imagine Andrew Tony with today's three point line? I don't know if Andrew Tony would have attempted a lot of three point shots. Uh, he, I think he would have expanded his game out if he had to. Uh, you know, but I mean, he was a, he 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 could knock him down from anywhere. If you 
Andrew Tony was Sean's favorite player growing up, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> Even more so than Doc. But they had they had uh, basically a six team rot- a six player rotation. Um, now Mark Ivoroni was the starting power forward, but you know he would end up typically sub out of the game. Uh, at the end of the game, it was usually Bobby Jones out there on the floor when they needed it. Correct. So you're, you're looking at you're looking at Moses Malone, uh, Julius, and Bobby Jones on the floor, and then you had Andrew Tony and Maurice Cheeks. Uh, you know, uh, Maurice Cheeks ended up being a Hall of Fame basketball player as well. So you're that was quite a that was quite a, fight, a very dominant team. They ended up uh, Moses famously quoted when they asked him, "So Moses, how do you think we'll do? You'll do in the playoffs?" And he just very famously goes, "Fo fo fo," meaning they were going to sweep every round, and they almost accomplished it. It ended up going as Philly fans will, will say, "Fo fi fo," because they beat the Lakers or not the Lakers, the Bucks in five in the uh, semis. And then they swept the Lakers, uh, kind of a sweet redemption because the Lakers had beaten them two out of the last three years in the finals. And so Doc finally gets that championship. Mm-hmm. What stands out in my mind is even though Moses Malone was the MVP of the league and the MVP of the playoffs in the finals, the last three minutes of game four will always stand out to me because Doc took that game over. At that point, with about three minutes left to go, it was a close game. And then all of a sudden, Julius Irving picks this particular time, which he could do at certain moments in his in his career, not as many as the, as at the end of the career, but he could still do it. He could still say, "All right, this I'm taking over." And in the last three minutes of Game Four, he scores the last seven points of the game for the uh, up until the last up point. Cheeks gets the final dunk, yeah. But he basically, um, you know, he scores. Grabs a defensive rebound, scores again, blocks a shot, scores again. I think he had a steal and a dunk at one point, and that's kind of what put him up because it went from being like a one-point game to all of a sudden the Sixers end up winning by 10, and then they sweep out the Lakers and win the championship. So, like I said, it was it was great to see a, a guy finally win that championship, but he did it on his terms where he – he took the game on himself and, and said, uh, this is my game and I'm taking it over. Yeah, it was, it, it was a great uh, cherry on the top for him to uh, to end it that way. Now, he didn't end his career. He ended up playing like three more seasons after that. And when he does finally decide he's going to retire, he goes on one of the more memorable farewell tours in sports history. Well, and I think that just goes to prove how important he was to not, you know, the NBA in, in its his whole tenure you had said that he was in the playoffs every year of his career but he was also an all-star every, every year of his every career year of his career right. so you're talking a 16 consecutive time all-star 16 consecutive time in the playoffs i i don't i don't know if that's a record but it sure sounds like one. i mean it'd yeah. be hard it would be hard to beat you know to have somebody that that was that successful as an individual and on your team right and you know and and i mentioned the farewell tour because it kind of plays into everything else we talked about with his importance in the culture. It's so the the amount of pressure that he had always having to be on for the public and, and being one of the more recognizable people, it might have been convenient for him just to announce that he's retiring at the end of a season and just walk away. But he knew how important it was for the NBA for his retirement. So he allowed kind of the circus it wasn't a circus but the fact that every city he went into at the end of his career he had to go through a pregame ritual where he would get a get some type of a you know a rocking chair yeah. or, or you know 
Uh, then the Nets ended up retiring his number, and he. But you know, he every city went and they honored him, and so he had to go through all of that as well. You know, I I listened to a recent podcast with uh, on Joe Rogan where it was Rick Rubin being interviewed, and he talked about Tom Petty, and he said that Tom Petty became so famous that he could not go out in the public. That he literally was at home, in the studio, and on the road. And then he would not go out into the public at all because he was just mobbed and too recognizable, and he couldn't deal with it. Dr. J was that even more. Yeah, he, you know, I, the one documentary that I saw, this is Dr. J back in 2013, and he's he's at a flower shop, and he's talking to these ladies, and obviously there's cameras there, and the one lady says to him, "Are you somebody? Should I know who you are?" And he's like, well, you know, he goes, I used to be an athlete. And he's like, oh, well, who'd you play for? And he goes, he talks, he names all his ABA teams, which is funny. Yeah, I played for a defunct team called the Virginia Squires. And he rattles them off. And and she's like, oh, what's your name? He goes, Julius Irving. She says, I know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, but this is 2013, many years after he's retired. This right. is Dr. J with gray hair. He's he's clean shaven at this point. You know, he doesn't have the, 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 the goatee from the 70s or the mustache that we knew him from in the 80s, and he is still recognizable and still d- interacting with the public as being, you know, kind of a gentleman, and he, and he even ends his NBA career that way. He's always been, uh, even to this day, when he goes out and does speaking engagements, one of, the, one of the compliments that he always receives is that he's so gracious to those that he is interacting with. Like he'll, if he goes and speaks at a dinner, he'll actually go sit down and eat his dinner. It's, you know, people that he's meeting for the very first time. And he's just very comfortable having those conversations. It's not awkward. Uh, you know, he's he's humble in, in many aspects, although he was one of those athletes that always knew his greatness, but yet he was also very approachable. Like you said, he was a very approachable person to the fan base. And I think like you, like we compared with him and, and Mike Schmidt, uh, you know, that's where he kind of stood out. Was that the and why else would you have this league event where he has to go and close out every city where I think it's been done, but never to the extent of that? Uh, where he basically it was a standing room only, and uh, you know, it was a ticket that was very hard to get no matter what city you went to. And I don't think you could say that for, for any athlete. And I think that tour kind of culminates what we're talking about here, why we're talking about a guy like Julius Irving. Sure, because he, while he was a great basketball player, you know, arguably one of the greatest, maybe, you know, to me, he's, he has to be in anyone's top 10. Uh, you know, if, if I'm, I, I like to always play games where I kind of come up with lineups, like what's your greatest lineup, you know, like your dream team type mm-hmm. of lineups. Doc, you know, I, I always have to like, you know, it, it's, it's always a, a fight between, Who's going to be that small forward? Because okay. my heart tells me it's got to be Doc. But Doc's, Doc's, if he's not my starting small forward, he's my sixth man. But he's, to me, he is in any, on any dream team that you're going to put together. So would you like me to, to get make you mad at this point? I'll read you the ESPN top uh, players of all time. Sure, go okay. ahead. Okay, all right. So what number do you think Doc came in at? Well, the fact you said I'm going to get mad, are you, are you going to put him like a 15? Uh, exactly. Number 15. Is that right? Really? Yeah. 15. So, uh, that's a joke. Number one, Michael Jordan. Okay. I'll go with that. Number two, LeBron James. Yeah, maybe. Number three, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Sure. Number four, Bill Russell. Yeah. Number five, Magic Johnson. Okay. Number six, Wilt Chamberlain. Right. 
Number seven, Larry Bird. Yeah, sure. Number eight, Tim Duncan. Tim Duncan over Dr. J? <laughs> That's why I paused. Come on. Tim Duncan, number eight. To, to, to quote our father, come on. <laughs> number nine, Kobe. Then Dr. J. That's, yeah. All right. Number 10, Shaquille O'Neal. No, not better than Doc. Number 11, Oscar Robertson. Well, I never saw him play. Well, and, and from what I understand, I think Oscar Robinson should be upset about that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. he was, he was uh, I think for him to be left out of the top 10 is a shame. Number 12, Akeem Olajuwon. Not better than Doc. Number 13, Steph Curry. That, no. Number 14, Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant. Yes. And All right, then, you can, you can make an argument for Kobe. You, that's about the only one that I that I said not better, but I could make an argument for Kobe, but not Kevin Durant. See, I I you know ESPN, and and this is where us being Gen Xers, I think, much like people the generation before us would say about Oscar Robertson or Will Chamberlain or Bill Russell, if they were fans of the NBA back then the star kind of fades over time and i think whoever came up with this list is in our age no i think they're clearly somebody who's probably looking at the stats and, and but you can't go by the stats um you know the fact that doc finished his nba scoring career average at about 23 points a game so by today's standards you know hey kd or steph curry you know these guys are averaging in the high 20s they got to be better right yeah sure yeah <laughs> But so he, and and here's the thing I know we touched on it a little bit but you know after that 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 wild team of the Sixers that lose to the Trailblazers Doc intentionally takes a step back and intentionally starts playing the team basketball that ev- eventually just makes them this perennial you know team that's always on right knocking on the door of a championship then eventually a championship so he steps back and actually sacrifices those stats or else he's higher up on the list Although there, Doc tells a great story about um, when Maurice Cheeks is a rookie in his rookie season, and there's one point in the game where Doc calls for the ball, and Mo gives it to him. And then the next time out, they're in the huddle, and Billy turns over and yells at Maurice, and he said, why did you give the ball to Doc? I That's not the play I wanted to run. And Maurice is like, yeah, but Doc called for it. And he's like, I don't care. That's not the play I drew up. And Mo's like, I'm giving it to Doc if he calls for the ball. Right. And and Doc said, this just tickled him. He thought this was hilarious. He goes, that's my point guard right there. <laughs> so it's just, you know, it just showed the respect that those guys had for him. But, you know, Doc wasn't the guy that was going to put it in their face or demand trades or demand that you get rid of this guy or that guy. He was going to play with, you know, who was, and he ended up at the end of his career was the beginning of Charles Barkley's career. And although Doc said, you know, Charles wasn't the best necessarily the best teammate to play with that not wasn't personal but it was it was the fact of the way charles played and that it just didn't suit doc's kind of team fundamental background charles was you know going to get the ball and he was going to dribble end to end and Mm -hmm. and dunk it and that just wasn't then when he saw that when he saw those that the new generation of players come in he was kind of yeah i think it's my time to to kind of walk out and and walk away and he played a long time you know especially for an nba player especially for a non-center that 16 years is an extremely long time with relatively few missed games until the very very end he did start to get some kind of tissue injuries he had some he had some knees that that would that would bother him from time to time he always he always had sore knees and then he started because of the knees he started to develop some hamstring issues and i think he had a shoulder problem towards the end of his career but 
the fewest number of games that he ever played in one season was 60. Of course, although if you listen to Steve Mix, he said Doc was a hypochondriac. So, I, you know, I don't know what the pain was. Pat Williams said the same thing. He said if Dr. J got a pimple, then he wanted a biopsy taken. <laughs> right. And, but, you know, it served him well because he was, a, like you said, for his size, an extremely durable player. And that's kind of what sets the great ones apart from the good ones. And we had talked about David Thompson a little bit at the beginning of the show. And David Thompson was somebody who many people compared to Julius Irving when they were in their heyday. And, uh, you know, David Thompson, unfortunately, he had some setbacks with, uh, with drugs, but sure. he suffered a major, major injury. And uh, for David Thompson, what, what kind of faulted him at the end of his career is he just couldn't stay healthy. And that's, you know, similar to what happened to other players like Larry Bird had a lot of back problems at the end of his career and wasn't able to, play as long as doc did at that same high level it, and so while doc may have been a bit of a hypochondriac the fact is he took care of his body and he understood that if i'm going to play a long time and at a high level i need to i need to get to bed you know i need to to be aware of any injury that i have and take care of them absolutely so um no i mean that's pretty much it uh you know i wanted i definitely wanted to get your um uh, you know, your thoughts at the top 14 players that, that came out in front of Julius Irving. That is Irving. stupid. I, I think anybody who doesn't have Dr. J in their top, at least in their top 10 of all-time players, didn't never watch them play. Exactly. They, right. They're looking at a stat sheet and maybe some highlights. But you're also, you are talking about a guy, and, and I think they, they hold it against him that they combined ABA and NBA points for him to get to 30,000 for his career. But I can tell you one thing. That, to me, is one of my most memorable moments of Dr. J as a basketball player was when he actually hit that 30,000 mark. We were watching that game on Prism. Mm -hmm. Jim Barniak was the play-by-play announcer, and he needed 36 points to get to 30,000 going into the game against the Pacers, and he put up 38, and it was actually one of the highest scoring games of his entire NBA career. Which is pretty amazing when you when you think about the greats. Some of these guys put up these monster, monster individual game numbers. The highest, most points Julius ever scored in an NBA game was forty five, which is a lot. Yeah. But when you consider some of these guys putting up seventy, eighty sure. points, yeah, uh, you know, at the age of thirty seven, he goes out there and puts up thirty eight, thirty eight points against the uh, the Pacers, and it was kind of like watching the old Dr. J, where he just took the game over. And it was it was it was neat to watch. It was neat to see him hit a milestone that meant, that meant a lot not only to him but I think to the league as well because that put him the only he was at the time the only the third player to hit that thirty thousand point mark. Right, and you know it, a non playing thing about Dr. J, which which I always have great memories of, is when the legendary late um, broadcaster for the Sixers, uh, Dave Zinkoff used to announce Dr. J at the beginning uh, of every game, and he would just bring the house down with how, you know, he would draw it out and uh, go ahead and you can do your best, Dave Zinkoff. <laughs> well, he would always, he would always start, go through the whole starting, starting five. And for, for us, the most memorable starting five was the, uh, you know, the 1983. And so it would always start out with, um, the first guy would always be Mark Ivoroni. Sure. And because Mark Ivoroni meant the least amount to the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, 
and it would go to uh, Maurice Cheeks, and then he would do Andrew Tony, and then uh, it would eventually go into Moses Malone, and because he he was just had this great way of kind of drawing it out, and then he kind of sit there and wait, pause just for a let, little, let, let the crowd let, let and, it build, and the crowd would start going and. 6-6 six, six from the University of Massachusetts, the captain number six, Julius Irving. And you just hear the spectrum. And anybody that played sports in the spectrum would tell you how loud it would get. Yeah. And one of the loudest moments I've ever watched on YouTube, it kind of brings me back to memories of the spectrum, was uh, the Sixers in the playoffs. I think it was 1984, which he ended up losing the game to the Nets. Mm-hmm. Um, but the crowd was, it wasn't because the crowd wasn't involved because the crowd was insane. It's like, and they, and they talked about how loud the spectrum would get, but Zinkoff would just get them so at a fever pitch. And the doc never disappointed. Correct. You know, they didn't always win games, but uh, I think Sixers fans always really appreciated Julius serving. The, the player and the person. Well, you know, a couple points with that. Doc always played. He didn't miss games. So if you bought a ticket to go see Dr. J, you bought you wanted to see the Sixers, you, you wanted to see Dr. J. He was always there. It, it's never like, oh, great. Yeah, you know, you know not, not to bust on, on, you know, backup like an Earl Curitan or somebody, but it's it's not like, hey, Clint, Clint Richardson's in the lineup and, you know, and it, not Doc. It's so... You got to see Dr. J, and I don't remember bad games. I mean, he, he was somebody that understood people were paying their hard-earned money to show up to a game, and he was going to give them a show. You know, there, there were going to be games where he would struggle, and it occasionally would happen. Obviously, he's, he's an athlete. They're going to be – but yet, he would always give you something in that game that would be memorable. You know, he would always show flashes. It wouldn't always be there like – you know, some nights he could miss, but then there were some nights where he's just struggling to shoot. But he sure. would always end up giving you, you know, something as a fan. And maybe we're saying this because we were kind of younger. And maybe. we're we're sort of in awe of, of Dr. J at the time. But, you know, when he gave you that little nugget, um, you know, you as a fan, you're like, oh, yeah, look what Dr. J did. So, uh, you know, that's how, that's our, you know, this show is about our memories of that sure. time. So I think, I think for us, that's kind of what we took out of that, that period in our lives for with a player like dr j right and he, he was somebody at a time when when you're very young and you you're really getting into sports which is what was happening with us so you know you had said to me early on uh, when you said you're going to do this topic that um you know we really didn't get to see doc in his heyday and i said well i, th- I think i kind of did and you and and I think that's the age difference a little bit where I don't remember that first championship run against Portland. I remember the year after that okay. because there was a lot of hype. So in 1978-ish, I kind of saw Doc, but at that point, Doc had kind of gone to the team style. So he wasn't, to your point, saying that you know we didn't really get to see the, the really high-flying Doc, except in flashes. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he was always able to provide those for us, so... That's going to wrap up our, our little uh, talk about Dr. J, Mr. Julius Irving, uh, one of the great ambassadors of his sport, one of the great gentlemen in sports itself. And we hope you enjoyed this. This, uh, If you didn't know everything about Dr. J, hopefully you learned a little bit more uh, during this podcast. And it's one of our few forays that we've done so far into sports. We're going to do a little bit more, but uh, you know, hope you enjoyed this one. Yeah, it's... Uh, uh, 
I, th- I think it's always good to kind of to to celebrate people, you know, especially some of these athletes. That it, it's easy to forget how great some, uh, you know, sometimes some some of these people were, and it's it's nice to to let somebody like uh, you know the legend of Dr. J kind of live on because if we don't keep telling the stories, you know, people aren't going to remember. Right, and you know, a lot of the things that he did that were legendary, you didn't get to see on TV, so. It's up to it's up to us to, to kind of that's right kind of bang the drum and 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 keep the legend of Julia Serving moving forward. Right. So now now we did sports this week. So when we do next week's podcast, it's going to be my choice, and I'm I'm going to go back into the world of movies again. Uh, you know we uh, we we touched on some some uh, you know Tom Hanks movies there for a while, but what I'd like to do is is um, we haven't shown a lot of love to the 90s as of late. So I want to go, and I'm going to put this to Scott, is come up with your top 10 favorite movies from the 90s. And okay. I'll do the same. This can be whatever formula, criteria you want to come up with. It doesn't have to be the best movies. This is ju- These are just movies that are your 10 favorites you want to throw out there. Yeah, and, and hopefully we have a kind of a different type of list. I, I know, as we said before, Sean and I have similar tastes. Um, but I think movies is going to be different. I right? think so too. I think this is going to be quite different. There'll be, there'll be one or two that I think are going to be on both yeah, of our lists. Yeah, probably. But uh, you know, as Sean said before we we you know went live with this with the podcast that you know the '80s had some really great music, but the '90s had some really great movies. Right. And I think that's kind of where the direction that we that we are going to go this week. So I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Very good. All right. Well, once again, thank you very much. As I said before, tastes great, less filling. Uh, the Gen X playback show, the largest, maybe the largest, fastest growing fastest podcast growing. in Nashville, Pennsylvania. That's right. Come visit us sometime. The tourist in the uh, tourist district would love to see you. Uh, we can give you a tour. Uh, it would take you about maybe five or ten minutes. Perhaps uh, yes. Come on out to Nashville, and we'd be uh, we'd be happy to, to to have you come aboard. So, once again, thank you for listening to Gen X playback. Uh, we'll talk to you next time. I'm Scott, and I'm Sean, and we'll see you soon. Thanks. See you.